What's all the controversy behind the recent memoir by Israel's former ambassador to the United States? Jacob Heilbrand will tell us about his review of Michael Oren's ally. I do think that he has a, a somewhat stark view that, that just doesn't jibe with reality about the omnipresence of anti-Semitism. What happens when two kids on the Upper West Side discover their father's affair? Julia Pierpont will be here to talk about her debut novel, Among the 10,000 Things. In this case, it's a story a lot about infidelity and betrayal and how these things lead to sort of misunderstandings between family members. Alexander Alter will tell us what's going on in the publishing world. Greg Coles has bestseller news. And we'll also let readers and listeners ask a few questions for us editors here at The Book Review. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Jacob Heilbrunn joins us now. He's the editor of The National Interest, and this week he reviews on our cover Michael Oren's new memoir, Ally, My Journey Across the American-Israeli Divide. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Pamela. So uh, for those who are not familiar with Oren, tell us about who he is. He is a failed academic who got his Ph.D. at Princeton University under the legendary Middle East scholar Bernard Lewis, and then he went and joined the Yitzhak Rabin government in 1992 and has had a meteoric political career. He was Netanyahu's ambassador to Israel during the Obama administration, and his book is a memoir, both of his life and his experiences in Washington, D.C. How long was he ambassador? From what year to what year? He was ambassador from 2009 to 2013. And now he is a member of the Knesset in Israel? That's correct. What party? His party is called Kalanu, and he's a, it's part of the coalition. And so, and where does it, part of Netanyahu's ruling coalition? Yes. Where does that fall on the political spectrum? Uh, I think it's a more moderate party than the Likud. Oren himself, I do not think, is as far to the right as Netanyahu, though Netanyahu himself is a somewhat slippery politician trusted really by almost no one in Israel. Let's talk about Oren's background. He was born in the U.S. When did he become Israeli? He became an Israeli when he became ambassador. He had to relinquish his American citizenship. But he had traveled to Israel decades earlier and uh, become, also become obviously an Israeli citizen. And he fought in the 1982 Lebanon war as a paratrooper. So he's served in, in several wars and is actually clearly quite courageous. How much of this book is is a personal memoir about that journey from being born in, in New Jersey to becoming an Israeli citizen? To me, that's really the heart of the book and the most interesting part, because it exemplifies the an, a young American Jew who is traumatized by the memories of the Holocaust that his father, his conveys to him. He became, he is sort of burning with resentment at America's failure during World War II to help prevent the Holocaust and its refusal really to take in very many Jews before World War II. So he became a fairly idealistic and militant uh, Zionist. You have a quote from Oren that he says, uh, the ovens of Auschwitz I often felt in high school were still smoldering. 
right. And I understand the impulse myself coming from uh, many of my relatives were either in concentration camps or and, and murdered. And I saw, I'm younger than Oren, but I, I grew up with this uh, understanding. But I'm not sure that it's the best way to proceed today on policy. It's really an emotional response. I'm actually kind of worried or concerned that people are instrumentalizing the Holocaust for political purposes today that are not really necessarily in Israel's best interest. The book itself is, as you said, at its heart, a personal uh, memoir, but it's also a political argument. What is the What are the points that Oren wants to make about U.S.-Israeli relations in this book? Well, there are two points. One is that he he argues that American Israel have to have an extremely close ties, that there can be no daylight between them. And he exaggerates the lack of differences in the past because the Reagan administration uh, infuriated Israel when it sold AWACS to Saudi Arabia, for example. So it hasn't always been a relationship that's been free of friction. But he wants his book, he argues, is a way of promoting the idea that American Israel really do have to be the best of allies. And he's worried that America is changing demographically and that Israel is losing its purchase on America. And I think what he's trying to grapple with is some of the arguments that Peter Beinart has made, that younger American Jews are feeling more disaffected towards Israel, and that with the changes in demography, that Israel can't really count on an, a natural reservoir of support in, in the United States, that it needs to actively engage and, and promote its interests here. But Beinart was criticized hugely um, when that book came out for, for saying that very thing. Are you saying that, that Oren basically supports that? No, I don't think he supports it. But I think in the back, what I'm inferring from his book is that he is, you know, he talks about J Street and the book and... Um, he makes some very dismissive comments about it. This is the more liberal lobbying group for American Jews. Mm-hmm. Yes, he calls them parvenus in the beginning, but then he softens a little bit. I think he is attuned to the shifts that uh, may be taking place in America. And his mission is to counteract them and to ensure that Israel has a solid footing in the United States. One of the things that people are overlooking is that he's quite critical of Netanyahu's approach. From what I got out of the memoir is that he is one of the few people in Netanyahu's entourage who counseled a more prudent path towards Obama. It's not that Oren didn't think that Iran was a terrible threat, but he didn't think it was always the most sensible course to, to taunt Obama or to uh, to challenge him as openly as Netanyahu did. And in fact, Oren counseled against Netanyahu delivering the speech before Congress. The one where he was invited by the Republicans to... By, by John Boehner, House Majority Speaker John Boehner, to denounce the Iran deal, which he did. Now, that was in March. So is that included in the book, which came out just a, a few weeks ago? No, I don't believe it is. I think that came a little too late. But he did quite publicly uh, counsel against that move, uh, which I thought was totally appropriate. 
but Oren since then has gone on to make some charges about Obama that are quite inflammatory, and they're latent, and there's some of it's contained in his book, but he went further in writing in, in Foreign Policy magazine and some other outlets, alleging that Obama's Muslim heritage explains almost pathological desire to reach out to the Muslim world. That was in the foreign policy essay that came out subsequent to the book's publication last month. Right. You know, he was denounced by the Anti-Defamation League for going down that road as well. It's amateur psychology and also, I think, completely wrong. He also um, spoke at the 92nd Street Y in Manhattan um, shortly after the book came out. And it sounds like his position on Iran has gone perhaps a little bit further to the right. I'm not sure about that. In the book, he's quite vociferous that he thinks an agreement would be disastrous for Israel. And I should emphasize that's, that's not an illegitimate position to take. I just happen to think it's, it's wrong. And the methods that he's using to assail Obama by alleging that he's, he's not focusing on the strategic reasons that Obama would like or, and Europe believe that an agreement is, is in everyone's interest. He's reducing it to psychology. Let's be open here. He's also quite critical of the media, including the New York Times. What does he say about the New Yorker and the New York Review of Books and and us? Well, the New York Times, he denounces for consistently being anti-Israel in its coverage. I think he he says essentially the same thing about the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker, that they anything except incriminating reports about uh, about Israel. And he calls the New York Review and the New Yorker Jewish edited, which I think is a terrible term to use since it evokes bad history of, of ascribing certain traits to Jews. You know, we don't talk about Jewish science. Why do we talk about Jewish journalism? Jewish edited, it's, it's just a terrible phrase. But he, again, I think he's blaming the messenger. The, he won't accept that there are Israeli policies that are taking place in the West Bank and the settlement policies that are attracting adverse criticism, not just in the United States, but also in Europe. And you can't simply wish it away. You uh, call the book remarkably frank in your review. In what ways is it remarkably frank? It's so rare to find a political memoir that is. Most memoirs, you know, especially by someone who, like him, who wants to have clearly wants to have a political career, and I I would assume that his ambition is to become foreign minister, are couched in in cautious diplomatic language. And uh, I think Oren is very forthright about his childhood, about his personal odyssey, about his his failure to uh, achieve an academic position, some of which probably was unfair. And then his struggles in Israel to find a solid footing. It's really a a very engaging book. What most surprised you reading Ally? I was taken aback by the allegation, which I think is overheated, that he encountered the tremendous anti-Semitism growing up, even in the 1960s, and claiming that uh, a WASP establishment still dominated America, including in the Ivy League universities. He grew up in West Orange, New Jersey. Right. This wasn't the Midwest. I don't doubt that he encountered anti-Semitism growing up 
as, as a child. I think that's all quite clear. But I, I do think that he has a, a somewhat stark view that, that just doesn't jibe with reality about the omnipresence of anti-Semitism in the United States in the 1960s. And I suppose that filters it through into, into he does seem to have a rather tribal approach to his Jewish identity. It's interesting for a book that's also about bridging uh, divides. Um, the book, again, is Ally, My Journey Across the American-Israeli Divide by Michael Oren, the former ambassador of Israel to the United States. And we're talking to Jacob Heilbrunn, editor of The National Interest, who reviews it this week on our cover. Jacob, thank you so much. Sure. Talk to you later. Thanks. Alexandra Alter joins us now to talk about what's going on in the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So what's going on is Harper Lee, Harper Lee, Harper Lee, right? Because we're getting close to the pub date. When does it come out? It comes out next Tuesday on July 14th. And um, it's the number one most pre-ordered print book in Amazon's history, I think. It's matches the last Harry Potter novel. Wow. Is um, it number one right now? It's number one right now. You know, HarperCollins is printing two million copies. There are some bookstores, some independent stores. The one in Harperley's hometown of Monroeville has pre-sold 7,000 copies. There are 6,300 people that live in the town. Wow. So that's a quite large number for a small independent bookstore. And tomorrow, um, some other newspaper called The Wall Street Journal is running an excerpt. That's correct. <laughs> a different newspaper. And The Guardian is also running an excerpt of the first chapter, which I think will be widely read, just because there's very little known about this book, apart from the fact that it takes place 20 years after To Kill a Mockingbird. It features Scout and Atticus when they're that much older. You know, it's the 1950s. It deals with the civil rights movement. But they've kept the plot really under wraps, and they've kept this book tightly embargoed. Review copies haven't really gone out or anything. Um, some bookstores are getting their books the day before they go on sale. You know, for for bookstores, obviously this is a huge event. They're trying to turn it into a conversation. A lot of them are staying open till midnight on opening on the 13th, staying open late, showing the movie, having discussions, having Southern food, having Dixieland, jazz bands. They're turning this into a huge party. Some bookstores are also sort of hosting a discussion about some of the issues and controversies that have come up, you know, in the course of this news being announced and questions about you know, why Harper Lee, who was always so resolute about not wanting to release another book, suddenly decided to do so just last year and sort of how the book was discovered. All right. So end of party segment. Now the dark side. <laughs> um, what was the most recent news that emerged this week? So the most recent questions that have come up again are about how the book was discovered. So um, Harper Lee's lawyer, Tanya Carter, originally said she discovered it in August of 2014 when she was going to check on the original manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird and found it sort of bundled together. But my colleague here, Serge Kovaleski, and I learned that a Sotheby's appraiser actually went to Monroeville in 2011, was invited in by Harper Lee's former literary agent, Samuel Pincus, to evaluate a manuscript that he thought would be To Kill a Mockingbird, but it was a different manuscript. And Tanya Carter and Samuel Pincus were there as he went through the 
through the manuscript, they even got a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird to sort of see what the differences were. So, And that was Ghost at a Watchman? That um, was a different manuscript with the same characters who were older. So it very closely matches the description of Ghost at a Watchman. But the people who were briefed on the meeting haven't read Watchmen, so it's hard to say definitively. And what does HarperCollins say about this? HarperCollins says it's, you know, it believes Tanya Carter's original story. Tanya Carter, when presented with this new version, gave us a statement through HarperCollins saying that she had been at the meeting, which was at this bank in Monroeville, where they went to the safe deposit box, but left to run an errand, and then was never informed about you know what was discovered there. So that was her statement. They said, you know, we have no reason to doubt her. We're going to stick by her. So, But other people have questioned whether she might have found it earlier, and, and if so, why there was no effort to publish it earlier. And that photograph was released as well this week. Yes. So there was what was probably the most exclusive book party in the history of publishing. Harper Lee had lunch with some of her publishers, Michael Morrison of HarperCollins. Some publishers from the UK came, her literary agent. There was a photograph that was released from the lunch. She was wearing a little black and white checked jacket. She was signing copies of the book. And somebody who was at the lunch told me that when they gave her the book, someone asked her, did you ever think it would be published after all these years since she wrote it almost 60 years ago? And she said, of course I did. Don't be silly. I take it you didn't get an invite in the mail. I didn't get an invite. No, I would have been there. All right. Well, we'll hear more about this book, I'm sure, next week from a lot of sources. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Julia Pierpont is here now. She has a new novel, her first novel, Among the 10,000 Things, reviewed this week in the book review by Helen Shulman. Hi, Julia. Hi. So uh, let's talk about this novel. If you're asked, what is this about? What's your response? Ooh, well, this is a book about a family in crisis, the way that people grow apart from each other. In this case, it's a story a lot about infidelity and betrayal and how these things lead to sort of um, misunderstandings between family members that cause them to grow further apart. And who is the family in question here? Uh, the family is the Shanleys. Um, you've got Jack, who is the patriarch and an artist, and his wife, Deb, who uh, is a former ballet dancer. And there are two kids, 15-year-old Simon and 11-year-old Kay, who is the one who makes the discovery at the beginning of the book about her father's affair. And how does she discover this? Uh, a box. A box arrives addressed to her mother that is given to her by her doorman, because they live up on the Upper West Side. And, uh, and she opens it, thinking maybe it's something for her, and ends up reading these pages and pages of printed-out emails and letters and just but everything printed out that was originally digital that's now you know just massed together from the mistress that her father had been keeping and so she had been why is this mistress sending these emails to the mother oh you know well when things go badly in a in a relationship someone's been spurned at that point the relationship had ended and she wanted sort of to get her revenge on on Jack and sort of there's something kind of interesting to me too about wanting to be on the same page as the wife in that situation, in a way, they they have more in common with each other. They should almost, you know, be on the same side. But it still was not a, a very good thing of her to have done it. So that's why she sent it, though. 
And you said that Jack is an artist, but they live in a doorman building on the Upper West Side. So presumably he's a successful oh. artist. This is a privileged world that they're in. Yeah, he's a, he's a moderately successful artist. But, you know, they've also the Upper West Side has changed so much. I think if, it, if they had bought that apartment a while ago, it, it, you know, real estate has changed an awful lot. But, yeah, he's he enjoys some perks in that way. You sound like a real New Yorker with that <laughs> comment about real estate. Did you grow up here? I did grow up here, yeah. On the Upper West Side? On the Upper West Side. I, I notedly wanted it to be a different subway stop. Like their subway stop would be different than my own. What was your um, subway stop? I grew up off of 79th Street, the uh, 1-9 at the time, um, not just the one. And uh, I always imagined them living off 86th. So it's very... <laughs> a totally different, different yeah. world. It really is. You know, I had to go up there and take notes and did yeah. you know you wanted to write an Upper West Side novel? I mean, it's not all on the Upper West right. Side, but right. um, um, I didn't set out to do that necessarily. I think it just is so, so natural, you know, when you, especially with the first book, you're writing an environment that you know well, and there are so many places in that neighborhood, like the Museum of Natural History shows up, places that I knew I wanted to set scenes in, and it just sort of made sense. And then it was great to also take it out from of there, but. It is interesting how the American Museum of Natural History is like this touchstone for so many writers and filmmakers, you know, yeah. from The Squid and the Whale to A Night at the Museum to, you know, <laughs> also things not for kids. Why do you think that is? And what did you want to do in the museum? What did you want to have take place there? Uh, well, aside from my own personal connection to it, I, you know, as a kid, I would go there um, with my, my mom would take me there. We lived a few short blocks away. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's such a beautiful place. And if you kind of walk through those halls um, with all the dioramas, you know, as a kid, it's so fun. And then I think at a certain point, you start to realize that these are all taxidermied animals. And then it suddenly becomes this sort of dark thing as well. And it just has so many things to look at and to think about. So I, it's one of those places, too, where I think if you come back later, I have this, I have a scene where the 11-year-old Kay, she is standing in front of a, a bear that I knew very well growing up as a kid. And the, I had sort of a similar experience where I had always thought of him as this friendly bear. And then when you really look at him at a certain point, you realize he's got these serious claws and he's actually a frightening animal that's behind the glass, you know. Um, There's a hallway that used to terrify me as a child in the museum, the one with the giant totem poles that I oh, would basically yeah. <laughs> have to run through uh, yeah. from one side to the other. And all these eyes on you. Yeah. And who is the mother, Deb Shanley? Tell us about her. Deb uh, was a ballet dancer. She is a former ballet dancer and um, basically ended up having this relationship with Jack that led her to being unexpectedly pregnant. And so she sort of left that career in ballet to raise her kids. And now she's, she teaches dance and everything. But I was really interested in exploring a character whose career is so heavily weighted on the early side where it's the true with athletes as well, just any kind of athlete, not just a dancer, you know. I was very interested in exploring the kind of career that has sort of an expiration date. And I think she was reaching the point where she was either going to make it or not. And I think when you sometimes that's the hardest thing is to face whether or not you're actually going to do it. And sometimes people just don't, would rather not know. And I think she, that is something that she sort of went with. She doesn't really know and probably because she was afraid that it wasn't going to work out. And so, but now that's something that she's living with. Is there a parallel there with her not wanting to know about the affair, even though, or not wanting to acknowledge yeah, it? Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think that's a good point. Yeah, there's a lot of compartmentalizing with Deb. And it's really not until the kids find out that she's forced to deal with it. 
It's easier not to. The book is as much about the kids as it is about um, the grown-ups. Tell us about these two characters, Kay and her brother Simon. Kay and Simon, they are very different from each other, and I wanted to really get a chance to dive into both of those age groups. And Simon has just kind of closed off to the world, is, is already angry. He didn't need this ammunition to get angrier, but now he has that as well. The case is a young 11, and she's a lot more open and um, impressionable, I think. And I mean, they're equally impressionable, but Simon sort of hides it better. And uh, they were they were both just interesting times to kind of remember um, where I was and trying to get in their heads again. Uh, Kay is a big Seinfeld fan, yes. another very much Upper West Side character. <laughs> um, were you also a Seinfeld fan? Is this your way of oh, kind of yeah. getting at that? I was. Yeah, I am. Yeah, it was an easy... Uh, television show to go with because I've seen them all. So I, I didn't have to do a lot of research. But like Kay, I did watch a lot of um, reruns as a kid, you know, and they are on so much. You get home and they're on twice in a row or an episode's on each different channel. You, between commercials, you can just be watching two different episodes of the same show at once. I think as a kid, I didn't understand that they were reruns. And I thought that it was sort of almost like a daily soap that I was watching. <laughs> it was all fresh day. and new. Yeah. You write about um, this marriage, this middle-aged marriage and long-standing marriage. Obviously, I, I don't think I'm revealing anything too personal to say here that you're in your 20s. Um, <laughs> was it hard to get into that mindset to understand that kind of relationship? I think that in a way, it's. I found it it's somehow easier to write characters that are more obviously different from me than characters with whom I have a lot in common, you know. Kay was sort of a hard character to write for me just because I was afraid that I was putting too much of myself and not making enough decisions about her as a character. Whereas I found, you know, writing as as Jack to be much more liberating or I was a lot more confident going through with it because I knew that he, everything he did was him and I had, you know, he had sort of arrived fully formed for me. It was kind of very nice to have that separate thing, have it be something that I actually haven't been through and never been married. Therefore, I've never had marital problems. Good way around that. Um, <laughs> you structured the story in a very uh, interesting way. Our reviewer, Helen Schulman called it audacious. Um, what happens about halfway through the novel? About halfway through the novel, you are torn out of the present tense and you are thrown forward in time and everything accelerates and you find out everything that happens to everyone in the span of about 20 pages. Um, we won't reveal that <laughs> on this uh, on this podcast uh, for future readers. Um, since the book has come out, you've gotten amazing blurbs uh, and reviews. Um, Helen Shulman in the book review called it a luscious, smart summer novel and an impressive debut. On the cover, uh, there's a quote from Jonathan Saffron for um, this book is one of the funniest and most emotionally honest I've read in a long time. What's it been like for you to have this this first novel come out to such acclaim? It's been surreal and really great, and and just I, I just feel so great that it maybe will mean more people read the book, and it's just been a wonderful. I mean, it's been not anything I would have fathomed. So, did you sell this book while you were in grad school? You went uh, to NYU. Yes. yes, that's right. I did. Um, I was uh, close to the end of grad school, but yes, I I was still technically there. How long had you been working on it? Um, I started. About in 2010, which is when I started grad school, and I think actually going and getting a degree in that or reserving that time to really work on it was what gave me kind of the authority to give myself to work on it that way. 
I had sort of been it had been percolating in my mind, but I didn't know I didn't know that I was able to write a book, so it was a good place to go and even admit it to myself that that's what I wanted to do. So, but the whole thing, you know, um, door to door was about five years, I guess. And are you already working on another novel? Um, I'm, you know, I'm not quite on another novel. I'm, I'm writing some scenes and seeing how things feel. I mean, this has been so overwhelming and amazing, and it's so hard to um, move on. You know, I really want to feel ready to move on when I when I do. And it's it's weird to not write about the same people anymore because uh, they've been part of my life for so long, but. I'm excited to work on something new. Well, so. enjoy this moment first. Um, <laughs> the book, again, is Among the 10,000 Things, a debut novel by Julia Pierpont. Julia, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. John Williams is here now to represent our listeners and readers um, with a few questions that you sent in to our Twitter feed, which is at NY Times Books. John, what do people want to know? Hi, Pamela. Well, this week, Philip Hansen, who is on Twitter as Evil Avatar, writes, how do you wade through the mountains of YA trash trying to find the one or two that might be worth reviewing? <laughs> okay. I'm going to take issue with the question uh, before I answer it. I, first of all, YA trash, I just think about what I read when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and I guess a lot of people would look at that and have called it trash. It wasn't necessarily YA because it didn't exist uh, to the same extent then that it does now. Um, but I think that having teenagers read is a, is a good thing. And I don't try, try not to look askance even at the most sort of genre or... Um, some of look, those can be the best. Some of them can be the best in, the in certain ways. Yeah. Um, but what we do try to do with the reviews, and I speak as the former children's book editor and I, our current editor for children's books, Maria Russo, I think does the same, is to find work that we have something to say about. You know, when you get into genre, it has to be, whether it's a dystopic uh, thriller or... Um, um, something uh, supernatural. Um, it has to be doing, trying to do something different or something new or um, have an original voice that's worth commenting on to make it leap out of the pack of like-minded books mm-hmm. um, or to be doing something different, um, something out of the ordinary. And the other thing we try to do with YA um, is to just not necessarily in every issue that has children's books reviews, but across the you know months of children's book reviews is to represent the landscape. So to make sure that we're not just doing um, you know action adventures um, or um, you know teenagers dying of cancer, but also to make sure that we're telling stories that come from all walks of life, all different genres, to make sure that there's a there's a diversity of YA fiction in the book review. And then we have another question for our friends over um, at the daily section of the paper. Yeah, someone wrote in and asked, um, what books does Dwight Garner recommend for summer reading? And it's a very timely question because Dwight actually just yesterday on Twitter wrote that if that primo summer book is still eluding you, what follows in no particular order are 10 that I've liked so far in 2015. And so the 10 books that he listed then in quick succession are um, Outline, the novel by Rachel Cusk, Hold Still, the memoir by the photographer Sally Mann, The Sellout, a novel by Paul Beatty, H is for Hawk, Helen MacDonald's memoir, which was on the cover of the book review and has gotten a lot of 
really great attention. One of Us, the very sad story about the massacre in Norway by a journalist there. Book of Numbers by Joshua Cohen, the novelist. Poems by Amiri Baraka, SOS, a collection of poems. The Love Object, a collection of short stories by Edna O'Brien. And the last two are James Merrill, Life and Art, a biography by Langdon Hammer, and a book that I just read recently and enjoyed too, Vivian Gornick's new memoir, The Odd Woman and the City. And so all should, of those have been reviewed in the book review as they well. They have. So people can go and look at our reviews as well, and they can um, pack up their beach bags for the rest of the summer. All right. If you have more questions for us at the book review, please feel free to email us at books at nytimes.com or reach out on Twitter at nytimesbooks. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's going on on the list this week? And not a whole lot. Starting on the fiction side, there's a new title in the number one spot. Daniel Silva continues his Gabriel Allen series that's uh, about the Israeli spy whose day job is as an art restorer. The new book is called The English Spy. Then down at number 16, there's the rare translated bestseller, The Little Paris Bookshop by uh, an author named Nina George, who, despite the book's title, is not French, but German. She does live in France now. And uh, this is a book um, that kind of hits the sweet spot uh, of bestsellers. It's about old Europe. It's about a bookseller. It's got Paris in the title. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And it's got that kind of woo-woo mystical thing going on, uh, like that other big um, translated fiction title, The Alchemist. This is about a bookseller who kind of has a mystical feeling for what books might speak to what people. I bet booksellers like that, too. (laughs) All right. Nonfiction? Nonfiction. uh, The two new titles are The Oregon Trail by uh, the journalist Rinker Buck at number 10. Buck set out with his brother to recreate, retravel the Oregon Trail or one of what turns out to be multiple Oregon Trails, um, the 2,000 miles from Missouri to Oregon that a a huge wave of American settlers undertook uh, before the Civil War to help settle the, the American West. And he does it by mule and covered wagon, as they did. And then at number eight, uh, the former Israeli ambassador and uh, podcast subject, (laughs) Michael B. Oren, uh, has his book, Ally. Uh, That's new at number eight. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. 